Turn with me in your Bible. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. As we uh, finish up our look at the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 2, verse 34. Read with me. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, once again we come before your almighty throne, thanking you for the word that we have in our hands. Father, we thank you that you have done so wondrously in preserving it and giving it to us that we might find you within it, find ourselves within it, and to understand what your ways are. And we thank you once again that we have this freedom to be able to, to study and to look in this particular way. And we pray that it would bear fruit once again before we leave this place, that we might glorify and serve you better. We thank you once again for your precious word. We thank you for this time. And we pray that your spirit will continue to work in our hearts, that we might grow into that perfect image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. Imagine a world where there was no injustice whatsoever. Where every crime was solved and brought to justice. Where people were no longer cynical about the justice system. Where there was never any police corruption. Where every, every, every verdict that was handed down was perfectly right where the politicians were always truthful and never told a lie, not even a white one. And everyone in society spoke the truth and behaved decently and righteously. You're already struggling with that, aren't you? Okay. Imagine a world where people didn't take advantage of one another in business or in personal lives, where respect and love marked the society that they lived in. Imagine a world where there was absolutely no war and when there was absolutely no need to spend billions and billions of dollars in arms and defence. Where any difference between peoples or nations was rightly judged and there was never any chance of conflict. Imagine the world with a pristine environment where we didn't have to struggle about there not being enough rain or too much rain or all the problems that we see around us today. Where the water was clear, the animals were plentiful and never in danger of extinction. Where plant life was truly abundant and when, when people planted crops, that they would actually grow and flourish and there was never any bad harvest. Imagine a world where animals never needed to hunt one another anymore. Where there was, you don't see the documentaries on TV with Attenborough that show lions devouring other uh, smaller animals and the like, where that was no longer needed. Where animals all fed together on plants, and grass, and herbs, and fruits, and the 
type of environment that they lived in was the same as the Garden of Eden. Where animals had no more fear of each other or of man, and man had no more fear of animals, and you could actually go around and paddle line and, and lie down with it and enjoy its company. And you could you could sit down with a snake on your lap. Where you would allow your child to, to play outside the front, the back, wherever it wanted, without any fear of it being abducted or, or bitten by a dog because there'd be no things of that nature. I mean, you can imagine you could ride a rhinoceros. That's one of the first things I'll do. Imagine a world where disease was eradicated, where people lived hundreds and hundreds of years without getting worn out, where there was no arthritis or heart disease or cancer, or diabetes and all the problems that we see around us today. Imagine in that world and in that economy that there was a ruler who wanted the very best for his people, who completely loved and was benevolent towards them in every possible way, and he had the wisdom and the power to always do what needed to be done. There was never any lack of resources, and everything that was done, every decision that was made, was the right decision. Imagine a world where people didn't have to resort to addictions to numb their pain, to find the meaning of life. Imagine there was no psychological problem. Imagine that you knew exactly why you were there, why you existed. You knew the meaning of the, of the universe. You knew the meaning of creation because you could see him face to face. This is, the type of the, this is the type of world the Bible describes for us in so many different places in the, in the Bible, throughout its pages. And it finds this realisation when Jesus returns, what we call, what we call, the time we call the second coming. And after a time of judgement upon the earth, where the earth suffers from the throes of a despicably evil and self-serving entity called Satan, tries to take complete power and control of the earth and its people, the Lord returns and, and begins a period of restoration and glory. And the prayer that we pray in the Lord's Prayer that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will be actually answered completely. As a, I don't need to pray that anymore. Thy kingdom come, it will be here. This is what we call the Millennial Kingdom, the Millennial Reign of Christ. And it's what Daniel described as a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and a kingdom which shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms that came before it and it shall stand forever. Today I'd like to speak to you about this kingdom, about this future kingdom, and what the Bible says about this time. And I must confess, as I was studying this, uh, this particular topic, I thought to myself, I'm going to easily get this in one, one sermon. Well, I've been known to make mistakes. So this will be at least two sermons long. Because as I, as I read and as I studied, I found more and more and more and more scriptural verses that have to do with the millennium, and I don't want to leave you half with a half message. Because I'd love you to go away with this thing and understand what the what the millennium is all about. Because if you if you ask yourself now, what do you understand about the millennium? 
who's confident they actually understand what it's all about? Francis TV, don't answer that question. <laughs> I think that most of us, even myself, thought that I had an understanding of it, but when the more I studied, the more I realised that I, I didn't really. I mean, we know it's going to be a glorious time where Christ rules the rules on the earth and, and you know, the lion lies down with the lamb and, and there's going to be all types of things. That you would, but um, the more I studied, the more I realised that it has a much greater depth than what I understood. So today we'll be looking at just a, a couple of, of main points and hopefully you'll walk away encouraged. Okay, so let's just, let's just go with a bit of background first. The millennium begins or comes straight after a final battle that takes place. And that battle closes what we call the tribulation period. The world has been judged by God. Satan has tried to usurp power over the whole world. The whole world has, has run after him and he set up his government there. Um, atrocious things happen. Um, demons are let loose from the abyss. Um, men kill each other. Families betray each other. Um, there are millions upon millions who die during this time. And it's at this particular time that Jesus returns. And he doesn't return the same way that he came the first time. See, he, the first time the Bible says he came as a servant, as a suffering servant. And he allowed, he allowed himself to suffer to achieve a particular goal. And that goal was to die for the sins of the world. Okay? But the second time he comes back, shall not be like that. You see, when Jesus was standing before Pilate, Okay, and, and Pilate was asking him these questions about what is truth and all these types of things and he says, don't you realise your own people have betrayed you and have turned you over to me? And Jesus answered and says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Okay, you get that? So Jesus was a king, and he rightly was a king. You see, he rode into Jerusalem as the king, but his people rejected him. So, when Jesus returns, he'll return as the king, but this time triumphantly. I love that illustration that, that, um, that, that Alan brought up a, a number of uh, months ago now, where he said to ride into a city in a, on a donkey... Was to, was to come in in peace. But to ride and, and come in on a horse was to declare war. Jesus rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem in his first coming. The second coming, he rides a horse. And he rides with armies behind him. He rides with angels behind him and the saints behind him and he obliterates the armies of the Antichrist. Turn to Zechariah. Chapter 14 with me. We'll, have, we'll start having a look at what this what this looks like. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 to 4, read. Zechariah, towards the end of the Old Testament. Chapter 14. Behold, Zechariah says, the day of the Lord cometh. That's the return of Christ. And thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. 
and the city shall be taken. And the houses rifled and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave, that means split, in the midst thereof towards the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Get that? Can you picture the, the north, south, east and west business? Because there's a, a valley that will go east to west. Okay? And it's going to be removed north to north, north to south, revealing that, that valley in between. Okay? When Jesus returns, he returns to the same place that he left. When he left, when the Bible says he ascended, which you find in Acts chapter 1, the Bible says that I think there are about 120 disciples around him at that stage and they watched him go up in the cloud. And the angel came and said, and what do you look, said why are you looking up in, in, into the sky? This same Jesus which you see, gone up, will come back the same way. And in fact, he lands in the same place. But when he lands in the same place on his second coming, the Bible says it's such a monumental uh, uh, time, the whole place splits open and there's a huge valley that, that goes through that path. Jesus will return as a lion. And if you go to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2 describes that for us. Let's have a read of those nine verses of Psalm chapter Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 1 to 9. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will decree that I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's pretty strong stuff. And the reason is that man has rebelled against God. And when Jesus returns, he's not coming, he's not coming back to a world that's Christianized. He's not coming back to a world where, you know, Christ, the gospel has won the day and everyone's a Christian and all the churches are all in harmony and the world is at peace. He's coming back to a world that is utterly... Uh, destroyed where the gospel has been rejected where Christians are outlawed 
where millions upon millions have, have had to die because they believe in Christ. Where a false religion has taken its place. Where the world has followed the Antichrist and worships him. And Jesus must return to cleanse the earth, basically. And there's a, there's a battle that takes place. And it says that when he does that, um, notice how it says that God will set up his king, which is the Lord, on Zion, on Mount Zion. And he's going to rule directly from Jerusalem. And God will give him the entire earth for his possession. And the Bible says that he will break them with a rod of iron. And he will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Which is interesting because if you think about it, um, that picture that we had in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a stone that, that came in and smashed the image. Where did it smash? It smashed the feet of clay and iron. And the whole thing just, just destroyed so when Jesus comes, he will break, he will break the, the feet of that statue and all the, all the, the world's empires and, and, uh, and uh, rules um, with his own kingdom. God says that he will give the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. He will possess everything. Now there are three aspects in which he will rule. Daniel says, in Daniel chapter 7 verse 14, he says, And there was given him dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. He, his kingdom will span every nation, every person, every language, every place. It won't be partly, it won't be like Rome that, that only, only managed... To, uh, to conquer a certain amount, or Greece, or Babylon, or, or the Assyrians, or the Persians, or the Medes, where they, they conquered most of the known world, but didn't have it all. Jesus will have it all. It won't be an island that his kingdom will not have authority. Then it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, if you want to turn with me there, that he will do so... And he will, he will rule the world, but he will also be the ruler of the Jewish people. He will rule the house of Jacob. He doesn't do that at the moment. Luke chapter 1, verse 31, it says, And behold thou, sh behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Now, most of you are aware, you know that passage, because it's talking about, the angel's talking about, Jesus who was going to be born. And then it says in verse 32, And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Jesus, We don't see Jesus ruling just yet. But when Jesus returns, that will be the time when he begins to rule the house of Jacob, sitting on David's throne, and he will take the inheritance of Israel to himself. An interesting part of it, though, is that he doesn't just rule, rule by himself. He rules through the believers as well. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, if you want to turn with me there, it says that he will govern the world through the saints of God. So he will use his saints to govern areas, nations, and possibly municipalities along that, on the, along that line. Daniel chapter 7 verse 27 says, And the kingdom 
and dominion. So we have to go a bit quickly today because there's a, there's a lot to get through. I don't want to be, I don't want to be too late. It says, Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So Christ as a king will be in complete control, but he will use his saints as rulers and administrators in the world. So, one, he will rule the entire world. Two, he will once again rule Israel as their king, as their specific king, the house of Jacob. And he will then, on three rule through his saints okay all right but before he rules some things have to be fixed up some things have to be cleaned up and he takes care of business pretty quickly the bible says when he when he arrives the first thing that needs to be done is satan needs to be judged so turn to revelation chapter 20 because in chapter 20 of revelation we find out this is, the, this is the chapter that refers specifically to the thousand years. And the very first thing that he does, the Bible says, is to judge Satan. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 to 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled and after that he must be loosed a little season. Okay? So... For the first time in the history of mankind, in the history of this planet, this being who rebelled against God and managed to, to, to bring along a third of all the angelic hosts with him, okay, in rebellion against God because he wanted God's throne. He failed in that one. Okay? He only got a third of them. All right? So ever since then, he's been trying to, to cause all types of havoc over here. He wants to sit in the throne. And that's why the, during the, uh, the uh, tribulation period, he wants to sit up here. He wants to be worshipped as God. That's a pretty good job of it, actually, mind you. For the first time in human history, the one that the Bible calls Satan, the dragon, Lucifer, the accuser of the brethren, will be incarcerated. He's never been incarcerated before. He's always been loose, on the loose, doing whatever he wants and where he wills. God restricts him in what he does, but he can even now go to heaven and come back. He can, he, can set, he can deceive men. He can do a whole heap of different things. The Bible says at this time, Satan will be bound in a chain. So he cannot move. By an angel from heaven and cast in what the scriptures call the abyss or the bottomless pit, which is an exclusive remand center for disobedient angels. It's the remand center for disobedient angels. It's a place where God keeps them when he wants them there. He doesn't want him getting out. During the course of history, God has already, the Lord has already cast a number of angels in that bottomless pit. There are many angels already there. Just there, in the darkness. They can't see anything, they can't do anything, they can't get out at the moment. Um, 
But the Bible also teaches us that during the tribulation period, they're going to be let loose. Nastiest, meanest, um, most deceptive beings in history will be let loose during the tribulation at one particular point. And they will cause absolute havoc on the earth. Turn to Luke chapter 8, verse 27, just so we just quickly understand how this works. You see, God has the ability and the authority to throw any angel he wants into that pit. No questions asked. He has the ability to do that. The Lord has the ability to cast him into that remand center. And, it, and it's a specific story that, that, that shows us how this particular thing works. There was a man, the Bible says, of a gathering, and they were possessed with devils. The devils had inhabited them. Okay? And Jesus came into that area, and look what the story says here in verse 27. And he went forth, Luke 8, 27, and he went forth to land, and, and there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils long time. There's more than one he had inhabiting him. And wear no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. And when, Jesus, and when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. That wasn't the man talking that was someone else talking verse 29 for he had commanded you know why it said that because verse 29 explains it it says for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man for oftentimes it had caught him and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters and he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness so Jesus had said to the, these devils come out and the devils answered and said what have you got to do with us Son of God, don't torment us. So verse 30 comes along and Jesus says, Jesus asked him saying, what is thy name? And he said, legion, because many devils were entered into him. And verse 31, and they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. So here are these a multitude of devils and demons inhabiting a particular man and Jesus comes along and says don't torment us son of God they recognised who he was and Jesus says what's your name and they said legion there is many of us in here and they, it says they besought him they pleaded with him don't throw us into the deep don't throw us there why didn't they want to throw it's not talking about the water he wasn't talking about he was going to throw them into, into some lake this is talking about that specific place where once they were thrown there, they were locked up until God decided to let them out. Actually, Matthew chapter 8, verse 29 says, it says the same story, and it says, And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Before the time? Before what time? The devils knew that in the end there was there would be a time when they would be let loose. 
when they were destined to be thrown in, either into the abyss or into the lake of fire. They know their end. And they were worried that their, their little game was going to be cut short. And this is the story where Jesus actually throws them into a... He casts them into a herd of pigs. And then they, those pigs go crazy and they, they throw themselves off a cliff. Satan has never been locked up in this way during the millennium. He will. He will be bound so that he won't be able to influence the course of the nations during this time, but he will be loose for a short time after that and he will go straight back to doing what he's been doing all this time, which is inspiring men to create kingdoms that are against God's kingdom. He inspires men to want to have the power and the glory for themselves and not to recognise that there is a God who has created them and who has ultimately the right to be worshipped. He goes ahead and does that sad. And you need to understand this in context. The Bible says that Satan's reason for rebellion against God was that he wanted to be sitting on God's throne and to be worshipped himself by the angels. And when one, only one third of, of the angels rebelled with him, he immediately turned his attention to man, to be worshipped by man, the one that God created in his image. What better way to get back at God than to actually get the ones worshipping him who were created in God's own image. So from the beginning, since the garden, Satan has been trying to manipulate, coerce, blind and do all these things to get men to worship him rather than to worship God. And it culminates in this period we call the tribulation. And that whole system that Satan's been building up through all these years and trying to get men into one particular direction so that he sits as God himself in the world will come crashing down when Jesus returns. If I need to remind you, Satan was the one who tempted Eve to sin, who brought man to ruin, who was plotted to sabotage God's plans to bring Jesus into the world. He tried to stop that. Remember, he inspired Herod to go and kill the children when he found out that the Messiah was born. He was the one, the Bible says, who entered into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. He was the one who managed to con Peter after Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Peter said, oh no, we can't have you die. Who inspired Peter to say that? The Bible said, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He is the one who was sought to deceive the nations. Indeed, the Bible has much to say about him. In our present age, he is described as the one who schemes and has devices against the children of God, the one who is able to transform himself into an angel of light. He is the one that Paul the Apostle said stopped him, hindered him from being able to visit the Thessalonians. Paul wanted to visit the Thessalonians and he said, Satan hindered us. He stopped us from being able to visit them. He is the one, the Apostle John says, this has deceived the whole world and will deceive the whole world in Revelation chapter 12. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. He is the one that goes up and down to heaven, standing before God and saying, look at what he did. He doesn't deserve to be your child. You need to be doing this, that and the other. He did the same thing to Job. He's accusing Job and says, oh, if you, if you take away his money from him, if you take away his power from him, his wealth, he'll, he'll uh, accuse you to your face. He'll swear at you at your face. And God says, okay, do it. 
but he doesn't. He takes away his family. He takes away all that he is. Satan continues to do that. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, and you hath he quickened. In other words, he made us alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We're in time past, you've walked according to the course of this world. We walk according to the way everyone else moves. The same direction, the same way, we're following the same course. We were according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He's described as a prince of the power of the air. There is no small description there. Think of it. The prince of the power of the air. He controls the air. He's everywhere. He's all over the place. Now, he's not omnipresent, but between him and his demons, they fly wherever they want and do whatever they want in this atmosphere. He is the prince of the power of the air and he he works in the hearts of people who are unsaved. He stopped he, he, he gave Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, trouble in trying to get through to Daniel so that Michael the Archangel had to come and help him. And there'll be one almighty war in heaven itself. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter twelve when it says there'll be no more room for him in heaven. They won't allow him to go back up there anymore. And the Bible says that, that there'll be a war in heaven, that Michael and he, the archangel Michael and his angels will fight against the devil and his angels, and he will be cast down to earth. And you know what the Bible says when that happens? What's going to happen? It says, woe to you who are on the earth. Woe to you. He can't go up and down anymore. And he knows his time is short. So he will be very, very angry. The Bible says that he still works in this world, in the unsaved world, to do his bidding. If you look at ISIS, the what they do to people over there. We, we, we managed to um, had a, a nice chat with a, with a couple who were getting married, and they're both from Iraq. They're both Assyrians, okay? And the, the girl was born in Nineveh, Babylon. Right? Now, Nineveh, which is the same town, right, that, uh, that Jonah went to, right, the same town, has been completely um, destroyed by these guys. Did you know that there's a church in Nineveh that they said had the bones of Daniel the prophet, right? They said there was a church that was dedicated to Daniel the prophet, Daniel the prophet, and they say that his bones were there, right, where he was buried. They blew up the church. They've blown, up every, they've blown up every Christian monastery and church in that place. They've almost destroyed it completely. You know what they do to people? When they went in there, they forced all the Christians to either convert to Islam, okay, pay a huge tax, which they couldn't pay, or they said, start walking. And they forced old, young Men, women, frail, um, impaired, whatever. They said, start walking. They made them leave everything they had. They couldn't even take a, a, their ring with them, their marriage rings or any certificates or any, or any paperwork or any medication. And they said, you start walking that way. Go to the next town. The Christians had a good because if you were Yazidi, they killed them automatically. Men, women and children. But because the Quran says that when you when you see a Christian, you give them you give them three options. 
right? You either they either convert to Islam, right? And they convert to Islam, that's fine. If they don't convert, you make them pay a tax, or you or you kick them out completely. And that's the free option they gave. The Christians had a good. Now, when you say when you when you want to see how the devil is continuing to work, that is where the devil continues to work. That is that is the depths of where men will go when the devil inspires a man to do that sort of stuff, believing that he's doing a good service to God. That's the depths of the Antichrist, of the devil. The Bible says that the God of this world blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them. The devil is able to blind people to the truth. You wonder why it's so hard when you talk to someone about the gospel and it just seems to go right over their head. They just do not get it. They don't understand the actual the actual importance of it in eternity when they're only faced with a few years on earth and how important that decision is. The devil is able to blind them from all of that. That's why the Bible tells us don't love the world or the things in the world because love of the world is enmity between you and God. Because the devil is in control of this world. The devil has managed to deceive 99% of the people on this planet. He controls much of the affairs of men. And Peter warns us to be super vigilant and super sober. To take this thing very seriously. And he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, has a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the, the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. The afflictions that Christians face are most are partly due or mostly due to the devil inspiring other people to attack them to afflict them so satan has abilities to be able to control the skies blind the minds of men against the gospel and war about devouring people but this will all be stopped during the millennium he'll be locked up he won't be able to go anywhere he and his cronies Will be, will be completely disabled at that stage. And what also happens after the, the, the devil's judged is that the nations are judged as well. At the second coming of Christ, there will be a series of judgments. We know Satan will be judged along with the Antichrist and the false prophet. Those two are going to be thrown into the lake of fire already. The believers who are murdered though, during that, during that seven-year period by the Antichrist and the false prophet will be resurrected, the Bible says. They'll be brought back to life and actually says that they, they're going to be beheaded for their beliefs by the Antichrist. They will, they will be resurrected and they will live again. The ones who have literally been beheaded, the Bible says, will become priests and kings in the millennium and they will rule with Christ. Turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. So remember, the beginning of the millennium begins with the judgment period. Christ has defeated, he's put down the armies of the Antichrist, he's bound Satan and his, and his demons, and now begins with, a, with the judgment of mankind. Verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones. And they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. 
And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So the first resurrection is the believers who die during the tribulation period. We've already been resurrected before. We've already been raptured before. Okay? We're the ones who the Bible says comes back with Christ. Okay? Because it says his saints are behind him. Right? But the ones who died during the that tribulation period, okay, they are resurrected. Remember, we've already received new bodies. Remember when we're, when we're um, raptured? The Bible says we get new bodies. Well, these guys who died during the tribulation period, they get their new bodies at that stage, at the end of the tribulation period, at the beginning of the millennium. And it says the first resurrection are for the believers. And it says, blessed is he who is part of the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So, this makes the millennium definitely a future event. Some will tell you that we are either living now during a tribulation period or we are living now during the millennium because they say the millennium is symbolic of Christ's kingdom upon the earth. No. It can't be that because, see this, resurrection? Where does it put this resurrection? Before the millennium or after? It's putting it before. It says those who, are, who have been beheaded are resurrected before the millennium starts. Um, if the millennium is, is now, when did this resurrection take place? I've never known any resurrection to take place just yet. I haven't seen anyone who have been beheaded and, and have come back to life. The thousand years are definitely a future event. And all believers, according to the premillennial position, which, which is we believe Christ returns and sets up his kingdom before the millennium starts, okay, have been resurrected or raptured, which means all the believers are now alive and have been raptured. The ones who lived, who, who survived to the end of the actual, um, uh, what's it called, the, uh, the, tri the tribulation period, live on into the um, millennium. So there are some people in the world who are going to survive the tribulation. They're going to be the ones who now populate the, the uh, millennial period. Okay. Um, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Christ will now judge the nations as well. Matthew 25:31 says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. That's here on the earth, on King David's throne. And before him shall he be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. During the tribulation period, there will be those 
who attack and hate and betray and, and use what they can and do what they can to attack believers, especially the, the, the Jews. Okay? And there are those who are believers who will try to help them. These are the people that will be separated during that time. The ones who, who are living at the end of the tribulation. Christ is going to get them. He's going to put believers to one side, believers on his right, goats on the left, which are unbelievers and the ones who have followed the Antichrist, and the ones who are unsaved, they won't get a chance to enter into the millennium. Only born-again believers will begin to populate the millennium during that time. This is a judgment of the Gentile nation. All the, the people of the world, they're judged according to how they've dealt with the Jews, the believing Jews. Okay? Those counted worthy are described as sheep, and allowed to enter into the millennium, those who are counted unworthy are called goats, and they're put to death. And a similar judgment happens to Israel. So God collects all his people, all the, all the Jews from the world, and he does exactly the same thing to them. Ezekiel chapter 20, I won't, I won't necessarily turn there now, but you can listen, you can read it for later time. Ezekiel 20, 34 to 38 says, God, I'm gonna, God says, I'm going to collect all my people, I'm going, to bring the, I'm going to bring them to the promised land. I'm going to purge out from among them the rebels and the transgressors and only the ones who are believers will, will live on into the tribulation period. Into the, sorry, the, the, the millennium. Okay? And who does some of the judging? The Bible says that we know that the apostles will do the judging of the, of the actual alarm of the uh, at that stage. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says to his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So judgment will be given to, in part, in part, to the believers, to the saints. And in this case, specifically, the actual twelve disciples, the twelve apostles. Okay, so the judgment of the wicked who have already died happens at the end of the thousand years. So the unbelievers who died during the tribulation and before are not going to be resurrected at this time. Only the ones who gave up their lives during the tribulation will be raised again and allowed to rule during that time. The rest of the dead, the Bible says, will be resurrected after the thousand years. And the Bible says that they will be judged according to their works. And if their names are not found in the book of life, they'll be, they'll be cast into the lake of fire. Okay? But if you aren't resurrected at the beginning of the, of the, of the, uh, the millennium, then you're an unsafe person. God will judge you at the end. Where all the unbelievers will be judged at the same time. Okay? Okay. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24, verse 20, and we'll just see how that how Isaiah describes that specific thing. Isaiah 24, 20 describes what happens there? 
at that at that judgment. Verse 20. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish the host of the high ones that are on high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together, as prisoners are gathered in, a, in the pit, and shall be shut up in the prison, and after many days shall, be, shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before his, and before his ancients gloriously. So God will judge to the ones on high. I think that's the angels that God's judging, the ones that are on high, because then it says he will judge the kings of the earth as well. And they're going to be thrown into a pit. The angels are going to be thrown into the bottomless pit. Okay? And God will judge the kings and the people of the earth at that same time. Which brings us to the government of the earth. The Bible says that Jesus will reign, will rule from Jerusalem, which is where judgment will be delivered upon the inhabitants of the earth and upon the fallen angels. I'll read with you a couple of uh, passages. Hosea chapter 3 verse 4 says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return, and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So at that stage, and with Jesus ruling in Jerusalem, the Jews will come back. Okay? The Jews will actually return to Christ and there will be the, like a, a, a regeneration of them. They will be renewed. They will be restored. Ezekiel tells the same thing. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. And he finishes that passage with, And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. So Israel shall be restored to God, and Jerusalem will be his capital, where he rules the world, and they will be his people, and they will serve him in that way. It's interesting when you travel around the, the towns and cities of Australia, and you realise some of the names of those cities aren't original. Ever noticed that? You know what? Growing up, I used to love going to a place called Sorrento. We go to Sorrento. Well, guess what? Sorrento is actually a famous beach in Naples, Italy. Spelled exactly the same way. Now, I used to think that was the only Sorrento, but until I realised later, later that that was actually named after a famous beach over there. The good people um, of Doncaster South, of Doncaster, would be horrified to understand that there's actually a Doncaster in South Yorkshire, in England. Or a Preston. There's also a Preston in England. Or a, and a Perth. And when we go to Harndorf over here in Adelaide, guess what, there's a Harndorf in Germany as well. And there's also a Sutherland, which is in, in Sydney, also in England. 
Would it surprise you then that there are there is more than one Jerusalem? In fact, there are three. Did you know that? At least three that I know of. Um, there is what the Bible calls the earthly Jerusalem, the one that, that it's in the Middle East in, in Israel. Okay. The Bible says there is a heavenly Jerusalem. There is a, there is a city of God in heaven, untainted, pure. There's anything called Jerusalem as well. And um, South Australia's managed to get in the act, and they've called they called a, a, a place over there in South Australia Jerusalem as well. Okay. But there are at least two significant Jerusalems. One exists in heaven and one exists on the earth, and always the one that's on the earth is a picture or a type or an image or a shadow of the one that's in heaven. Because the Bible says there is an altar in heaven, a temple in heaven, and a city in heaven. And we have those things over here. So where there's a temple and there's, a, there's an altar and there are sacrifices and there's a city, those things are also in heaven. And here is a shadow of those. At the moment, a very dim shadow. But there will come a time when God himself, when Christ himself sits on the throne in Jerusalem, where that, where that actually becomes one. And God's glory returns to the temple and to the city. The Bible says that the earthly Jerusalem here will be restored, rebuilt, and it will be a wondrous capital of the world. It will be the, the capital of the world and Jesus will rule from there. And it says that the time of the Gentiles, the time that the Gentiles have trodden down Jerusalem, so understand that when we look through Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and the Antichrist, well, that's all the time of the Gentiles. The Gentiles have ruled that, that plot of land where they've, where they've overcome it. And maybe even though the Jews were there, it was the Romans who were telling them what they could and can't do during Jesus' day. It was the Greeks who were telling them what they could and couldn't do in their day. It was the Babylonians who said, you need to go, come or go, do whatever we tell you to do. We're in charge. The Bible says there's going to come a day when the Gentiles will have no say in that land and in that city. But God himself will be their king and they will do as they, as God tells them to do, not as the Gentiles will tell them to do. But the interesting thing about it is that the Bible says it will be raised. It will actually be physically raised above above the earth. You see, it's it's not big enough to fit everything that the, the prophet Ezekiel says, but it's actually going to be raised and expanded at the same time. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14 with me. Zechariah 14.10 So I had two references and I'll just read you the other one but we can read this one together. Zechariah 14.10 says All the land shall be turned as a plain from from Geba to Rimon south of Jerusalem and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate unto the corner gate and from the tower of and anneal unto the king's wine press. So it actually says it will be raised 
the whole capital will actually be raised up from the ground. Isaiah chapter 2 says the same thing. It says, It shall come to pass in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. So Israel, sorry, uh, Jerusalem shall be rebuilt. It will be much larger than it is today. It will be actually a working capital. It will be raised above the earth and the Bible says that all the nations will flow into it, will bring their their um, their gifts or whatever else and their respect into that into that city. Now, this is the last one. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 18. So I think this is a wonderful passage that describes what will happen to Jerusalem and to the Jewish people. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness, and cheerful feasts. Therefore love the truth and peace. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, it shall, come, it shall yet come to pass that there shall come people, and the inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord. And to seek the Lord of hosts, I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. That's what it's going to be like during the millennium. The Jews who are now have rejected Christ as their saviour and their king will at that stage, will at that time, do what they were called to, to have, what they were supposed to do from the beginning, to be a light to the Gentiles, to be the ones who teach the Gentiles about what it means to have a relationship with God. During that time, the Bible says that people will look to them and say, teach us what it's like to know Jesus. And people will be eager to go to Jerusalem to worship him and to and to um and to stand before him because Jesus will be there. Is it exciting to you? Absolutely exciting. Now, to be honest with you, I'm not sure what we're going to be doing. Whatever we're going to be doing, it's going to be exciting, and I think we're gonna we're gonna be spending time with the Lord. What we need to understand though is now, what we do with now. Because you see how I told you that there's a heavenly Jerusalem and there's, a, there's an earthly Jerusalem? Well, the earthly Jerusalem hasn't been restored yet. Jesus isn't sitting on a throne there and the Jews haven't, haven't been regenerated. They haven't been converted. So guess who the world needs to look to? To be that light. It's us. God is calling us. We are required to, during this particular time, be those lights to the Gentiles. Hebrews chapter 12 says, But ye have come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. 
you and I have been made citizens of that Jerusalem already. We're citizens. And the Bible says that, that we've come to a God who has made the, the, the spirits of just men perfect. And guess what? We're the, we have the spirits of just men made perfect, not because we're just, because God has declared us just because of what Christ has done. And God will perfect us. When we're raptured, we'll be absolutely perfect. Okay? But you know something? Don't wait. Please don't wait until the rapture to start progressing and growing in your life. God wants us to be his children and his disciples and his ambassadors now. We need to be living for him because we are already citizens. The Bible says we have already come to the presence of innumerable angels. They're our company now. And that will be our future. Now, though we can't see it just yet, we need to understand that what we do, every moment that we live on this earth, has eternal consequences. Every decision you and I make, every word we speak, every action that we take, has repercussions later on. So remember that you, that we are we. If you are saved this morning, that you are already a citizen of that kingdom. You don't have to wait for the one to be restored. You don't have to wait for the thousand years to come. Even though it's exciting for us to hear and it will be a glorious time on the earth, guess what? We have very important things to do now. We can be, we, we can be you know, thinking about the future, which is fantastic, but you can sit there thinking about how wonderful the future is, but lose the moment now. And if you lose the moment now, you're going to regret it later. So if you're a Christian this morning, yes, get excited about what you're doing. God's in complete control. Be confident about what, what God's plans are because nothing the devil will do can stop God. But what are you doing with your life? If I had to ask you now, are you the same as you were last year? Or the year before? Would you be happy if in five years' time you were the same you were today? How would you feel if you were the same person you were today? Would you be disappointed? Probably. If I was the same person I was today, I'd be disappointed if I, if I was that in five years' time because it meant I hadn't grown. And God expects us to grow as children. If you're saved this morning, do what God asks you to do. Make a difference in the world. And don't sit. Don't stand still. Because the time is way too short to be wasting it. God bless you.